They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. During the night, Paul had a vision, a man of Macedonia pleading, Come over to Macedonia and help us. We immediately tried to cross over, convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis to Philippi, a Roman colony. On the Sabbath day, we went by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we spoke to the women who had gathered there. Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, Come, stay at my home. This is the word of the Lord. You recall that Luke tells us in the Bible that he set out to write two scrolls. First, that he had gathered as many different stories about Jesus as he could and had written a gospel. And then he wrote that second scroll called the Acts of the Apostles. That second scroll begins with the Pentecostal experience. Simon Peter, the predominant voice, the one called upon to explain what had been happening in the the death and resurrection of Jesus. But then very quickly, Luke shifts to another, a fellow named Saul. Biblical scholars believe that Saul was about 19 when Jesus was crucified and raised. He tells us himself that he was a native of Tarsus. Let me help you with your geography just a little bit. If you imagine where the modern nation of Israel sits, just immediately north is Lebanon. Immediately north and east is Syria. Syria sort of wraps around and goes over the northern top of Lebanon. It did in biblical times. And if you went right through Syria, just immediately then to the west was Cilicia. And a primary part of Cilicia was Tarsus, a Roman colony, making Paul by birth a Roman citizen. He says that he went to Jerusalem as a young man and studied under one of the most popular rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. That after he started hearing these stories of a real person who was crucified, whom some said had been raised, he knew that this was blasphemy. There's only one true God. And he set out to persecute those who were saying that Jesus had been raised. There is no evidence that Paul had ever met Jesus. In fact, he calls himself one untimely born, one who never got to see the physical flesh and blood Jesus. He became an ardent persecutor of the young church, eventually making his way toward the capital city of Syria in Damascus. And on the way, you recall, he was struck down, blinded, said that he heard in his deepest heart, Saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was taken on into Damascus in that blinded state, and two Christians were confronted by the Spirit of God saying, Go explain to Saul what has happened to him. And they went, calling him our brother Saul. And he became the first great missionary to us Gentiles. Luke spends the most of the rest of the book of Acts telling us some of the many, many experiences of Saul. We believe that he was put to death under the persecutions of Nero in the year 62, when he was 52 years old. Let's look at the story for today.
Number one, Luke says, they purposed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus forbid it. That night, Paul had a vision. When we baptize people who are old enough to be making this decision for themselves, you hear me ask them the questions that you and I were asked. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah of God? Do you believe that if you confess your sins to him, he will forgive you, grant you forgiveness, life, life abundant, life everlasting? Do you believe that a God who loved you so much would not then abandon you, but indwell within you to guide, comfort, counsel, direct you to the kingdom he has prepared? A person must say, yes, yes, yes. Well, Paul had come to believe that. By the time Luke writes, the early church had not yet carefully formulated what we call the doctrine of the Trinity today. They weren't really talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Notice what it's called here, the Spirit of Jesus. It was a resurrected Jesus who confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, and it was the resurrected Jesus who's still guiding his life, saying, don't go that way, I want you to go that way. Andrew Attaway is a book editor in New York City. He's recently written about a night when his two daughters were squabbling with each other. Mary's 11, Maggie 8. Maggie was being a nuisance, the little sister being a nuisance, and finally Mary says, well, you don't act like you're eight, you act like you're still six. And little Maggie said, well, I'm immaturing. And Andrew said, I think she did not say what she meant to say. I think she meant to say, I'm maturing. But it came out as clear as a bell, I'm immaturing, which is what she was doing, of course. She was immaturing. And then he said, I pray that I'm not immaturing. I pray that I am being led by the Spirit of God. God is saying, don't go there. I want you to go there. Don't do that. I want you to do this. And that we're receptive. We're listening, we're hearing, and we're moving on what we hear. Notice then, after this vision of the Spirit of Jesus telling him, no, I want you to go in a different direction, they got on with what they were called to do. Paul saw a vision, a man of Macedonia waving to him, saying, come over and help us. Now, here again, you need to, to see your geography a little bit. When Paul became this young missionary, he moved from that territory, Cilicia, into what you and I today would call Turkey, the larger part of Turkey. You know that Turkey is divided, really, into two, on, on two continents. The bigger part of Turkey is in Asia. Ankara is in Asia, but Istanbul is in Europe. They are separated by the Straits of Bosphorus. So all of Paul's life, he's been in Asia. The vision is of one from Macedonia. Ah, you know that name, Macedonia. Five centuries before, a fellow named Philip of Macedon had a son named Alexander whom the world would come to call Alexander the Great. 
whose armies swept around much of the Mediterranean world. That Macedonia, to a city specifically named for Philip of Macedon, Philippi. Paul sees that God is saying, it's been a little easier in Asia. It'll be a lot tougher in Europe. There are not nearly so many Jews who've already tried to convince folks there's only one God. Almost everybody in Europe at that time were polytheistic. They had multiple gods. It'll be a lot harder. But I want you to come over and help us. Sixteen months ago, when Rabbi Zimmerman was here for our Barton Clinton Gordy series, he reminded us that most of the people who were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures in biblical times could not read them, did not write them, they heard them read. And that's true of the Christian scriptures as well. In Jesus' little village, scholars believe probably 98% of the people who lived in Nazareth could not read nor write. There had come a time after Alexander the Great when more Jews could understand Greek than could understand Hebrew. And so a group of 70 scholars had gathered down in northern Africa at Alexandria to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Those of you who do a lot of serious reading in Bible studies will often see this abbreviated as LXX, Roman numerals, 50, 10, 10, 70. The LXX, the Septuagint is what it's referring to. So Paul would have been more familiar with the Septuagint than he would have been the Hebrew. And there's a word, Rabbi Zimmerman reminds us, words that occur and then reoccur in the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you're not reading and writing, you're only hearing, you have to remember those key words. This is such a word, the word for help us. Help, help. Let me give you just one example. You know that the scroll of Isaiah contains the writings of three different persons. The first 39 chapters written by a prophet of the 8th century who has seen the northern tribes devastated and who's begging the king of the southern tribes, Judah, and its people to reform, reform, turn to the Lord your God. He's really giving them a hard time. And then suddenly at chapter 40, a different tone entirely. Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Second author, one writing 150 years later. He's in captivity with those who've been forced marched to Babylon. He has seen the temple ransacked and burned. He has seen the royal palace ransacked and burned. He has seen all the king's sons dragged in in front of the king of Judah and executed right in front of their father so that he can see there will be no more heirs to the throne of David. And when all are dead, then the king's eyes are gouged out and he and the best and brightest are forced marched to Babylon. That one writes chapters 40 through 55. Chapter 41 says... Do not fear. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am your God, your Elohim. I will strengthen you. I will help you. That's the word in Greek. Verse 13. 
For I, the I am who I am, your Elohim, your God, hold you by the right hand like a father or mother holds that of a child. It is I who say to you, don't be afraid here in Babylon. I will help you. The very next verse, third time. I will help you, says the I am who I am, your Redeemer, the set-apart one of Israel. We can read all through those 15 chapters. Let me just mention one more chapter, 50. The Aye Asher Aye, that is the I am who I am, your Elohim, my Elohim helps us. Who will contend with us? Let us stand up together. Who are our adversaries? Let them confront us. For it is the I am who I am, our Elohim, who helps us. So the one who gave his name to Moses at the burning bush, who sent Moses back to Egypt, who visited plague upon plague upon Pharaoh till he released God's people to freedom, who parted the waters of the sea, who gave them the Ten Commandments, who saved them, out of the hands of the Babylonians 600 years after Moses, that one is needed in Macedonia. That one is needed in Macedonia. Paul, they don't know about me. Cross over and help them. Number three. So immediately, Luke writes, we set sail. We left Troas and went to Samothrace. That's about 60 miles. And from Samothrace, we set sail to Neapolis. That's the port nearest Philippi. And from Neapolis, it's about nine miles inland to Philippi. Total, about 125 miles. But a thousand miles, almost a million miles in change of territory. From Asia, where there were a fair number of Jews and a synagogue in any good-sized town, into Europe, where there were almost none. Comparatively speaking, almost none. But we set out to do what we were called to do because we were convinced that God Almighty had called us to preach good news to them. Melody Bonet is a television director down in Louisiana. She lives in the community of Mandeville. She's an active church member and was saying that at Thanksgiving time she had gone to her church and here was a young woman who had grown up in their church, graduated high school, had gone off to college, one of the major state universities. She remembered that this young lady, Stephanie, was going to major in one subject but wanted to play in the band at this big university and had told everybody she was going to try out for the band. So when she saw Stephanie, she gave her a hug at church that Sunday morning and said, Well, Stephanie, did you make the band or not? And she said, I did, but it's unbelievably hard. She said, I had to get there three weeks before the other students. And we started getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and getting down there ready to start all these lessons with the band. We worked out three hours. We had to come back in late afternoon. It was 100 degrees and do three hours more. Three hours early morning, three hours late afternoon, day after day after. Then classes began. The days got shorter. Now it's dark. Now it's cold. Melody says, I ask, then why do you do it? You don't have to do that. And she said, oh, Ms. Bonet, it's all worth it when you get to game day. It's all worth it 
when you get to game day. And Paul, whose life would never be the same after that afternoon on the way to Damascus, wanted every other human being he could help to meet Jesus to help them meet him. And believed the game day would come when all would stand before the throne of God and Jesus would make intercession for those who would come to faith in him. Number four. There's an indication here that there was no synagogue in Philippi. If there was, it isn't mentioned. Paul doesn't go to a synagogue on the Sabbath day. Instead, Luke writes, we went out the gates of the city and walked along the river. That's the Ganges. It's not a huge, big Mississippi kind of river. It's a little Illinois river when it hasn't rained very much. Walked along the river because we'd heard there was a place of prayer. And what they found was a little group of women praying. And they sat down with these women, and Paul started telling them about Jesus of Nazareth. One was named Lydia. She was a person who stood in awe in fear of the one God. She listened intently to what Paul was saying, and the Lord opened her heart to receive. We're told she was a dealer in purple, and I've reminded you that purple was a very difficult color to reproduce in biblical times. The color was found in shells down deep in the Mediterranean Sea. Divers had to go really, really deep into the sea to find this particular shell and reproduce the color. So only the richest of people and royal families had purple. If Lydia's selling to them, Lydia's got money herself. If Lydia has a house big enough to invite all these people to come and stay, Lydia has money. And Luke himself has told you in his gospel, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And here's a rich woman coming in the door. Bishop William Willimon has written commentary on the book of Acts, and he says, can you see the barriers falling by the wayside in the Christian church when a group of Jews agree to stay in the home of a Gentile? when these men are willing to be seen with seemingly a single woman, when they treat her as if she's somebody important, a woman. So it's Jew and Gentile, it's rich and poor, and they're all together in this new church of Jesus Christ. Because God calls and God enables people to respond. Jeff Chu is editor of a uh, money magazine up in New York City. Uh, this particular magazine is called Fast Company. Jeff has written about growing up in San Francisco. He is a Chinese-American. And he said, when I was a boy growing up, my family always went to church on Sundays, and my grandmother would take me by the hand after church and say, I've got to get a couple of things for lunch. She loved to go into Chinatown there in San Francisco and buy two or three things for lunch. And inevitably, she would say to the first person she met in one of those markets, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? And he said, I would want to crawl under the counter. I would want to go running down the street I wanted to say, please don't pay any attention to my crazy old grandmother. But 
when I became a man, I learned more about her story. Her father, living in China, was converted to Christianity. A missionary told him there's only one true God. And that God had revealed himself most clearly in Jesus of Nazareth, whom the world crucified, whom God raised. He not only became a Christian, he became a preacher. And he and his wife had a daughter, Jeff's grandmother. And she thought the Christian faith was the greatest thing that had ever happened to her family, and she married a young preacher when she got old enough. And then the communists came to China. And his grandmother, a young woman at that time, with a young husband, managed to escape the communists and come to the United States of America. They lived in San Francisco, California. The grandfather now had died. The grandmother lived alone, but met her family at church every Sunday and wanted them all to come over for lunch afterward. But she just needed to get a couple of things from the Chinatown markets. Jeff writes, she couldn't help herself. She just couldn't help herself. The Christian faith was the greatest thing that had ever happened to her family. And so every person she saw, she asked, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? She didn't have to get on a plane and fly way off somewhere. She did it every time she went to buy a few oranges. 